0: Things are heating up in Westeros in more ways than one. I've got my review of House of the Dragon episodes 3 and 4 right now. Hello everybody, I'm Dan Merrill here with my recap of the last two episodes of House of the Dragon. First of all, don't adjust your sets. I'm not wearing my glasses. I know it's been a while, but I'm juggling contacts and glasses a little bit. Also, just a reminder, as I'm talking about this series, I do not have extensive knowledge of what is coming. I have a very basic knowledge of what's ahead, but I don't know the details of everything that's going to happen between all the different characters on this show. And I also will not be discussing the things that I do know about the future. I'm taking these episodes one by one as they come so if i'm speculating on what's going to happen between different characters it really is because i don't know so let's talk generally about these episodes and where we've come since the first two episodes of the series and what i like so far that the show is doing with its characters is playing with the audience expectations about protagonists and antagonists or who you're rooting for who you're not rooting for who the good guy and the bad guy is when we look at those first two episodes, Damon seemed like the clear-cut antagonist, and yet by the end of this fourth episode, it looks like he actually has more in common with Rhaenyra than he does with his brother Viserys, and Rhaenyra is kind of separating from her father as time goes on. We don't have a true alliance between these two characters, but it's not as black and white clear-cut as many shows would make it this is the bad guy, he's plotting bad, evil things, and these are the good guys, they're plotting good, righteous things. It's something that Game of Thrones has always done, more or less, but here we have basically the entire main cast, and they're all playing Shades of Grey, and their characters are all Shades of Grey, and that makes interesting television for me. When you look at Rhaenyra, for example, she would be our unquestioned protagonist, and I think she still generally is right now, but by the end of this episode, she's lying to her best friend, and she's getting the hand of the king removed from his position because he reported the truth of what she was actually up to. I am the princess. To to question my virtue is an act of treason. And then we have Viserys, who I think is generally a good man, but does that make him a bad king? That's a question that we all have to answer and it shifts from week to week. That's what I think is holding my interest as we get into these first few episodes. My understanding of these characters changes, and I like this, I don't want you to plant a character in a camp and say, okay, these are these people, and these are these people, and these are who they are, and that's all that they're going to be. You shift alliances, you shift your opinions as you go, that keeps me engaged, and I think that means that they're well-written, rounded-out characters. One standby on Game of Thrones that is carrying over to House of the Dragon, of course, is warring houses. What would Westeros be if there weren't two houses that were on the brink of going to war with each other? And there's big conflict brewing with House Valerian. The sea snakes war against the crab feeder actually didn't last as long as I thought it would. It basically was dealt with in its entirety in episode three, but what it's doing is feeding into an even bigger conflict now that has to be remedied through marriage and negotiation. And a lot of that is coming straight through Damon Targaryen, who allied himself with House Valerian at the beginning of the series. When you look at his relationship with Viserys, it is such a rich relationship despite some very limited screen time. When we go to episode three and the ending of this war on the Stepstones, you think that he's gonna be happy to hear that he's getting reinforcements from his brother and yet you understand in that moment when the messenger comes and he beats him up and then goes basically on an attempted suicide run to try to end this war single-handedly or die trying, that it was never about making the king look bad. Because that was the whole thing with Viserys, I can't send troops now because it'll make me look weak. That wasn't Damon's goal. His goal was to make himself look strong and that's exactly the position that he ends up in at the end of episode three. Yes, he almost died, yes, it was really up to a last minute rescue from a dragon rider in order for him to survive that battle. But he comes out of that conflict with a very good stepstone stone back into the inner circle, which of course he immediately squanders. And I mentioned the dragon riders, we saw Laenor Valerian riding that dragon at the end of episode three, and that's something else that I'm very interested in because in the lore of Game of Thrones, the TV show really thus far, the Targaryens are the only dragon riders. So when you introduce House Velaryon, the fact that they have ties to Old Valyria, that they can ride dragons, that generally has come straight through House Targaryen as we have fast forwarded it in the future to Game of Thrones. That's one of the reasons I like that they've gone backwards in time because we have these sort of legacy houses and characters that weren't necessarily around or part of the action in Game of Thrones that we can now have new conflict with. One thing I really did like was the metaphor of one of Daemon's soldiers thinking that he was there to rescue him, only to just be obliterated under the feet of Caraxes. I really can't think of a better representation of the power dynamic in Westeros, no matter when the story is taking place. The third episode was also largely about the race to the throne and the complications with the birth of Egon II, who is now Viserys' firstborn son. And I know that a lot of people are not a big fan of the time jumps that have happened in this show. The time jump between episode two and episode three was, I think, three years. But for me, depending on the story that they want to tell, if making that time jump is the most efficient way to tell that story, then I don't really mind it so much. I think by the time we get to the end of this season and I look at the story that's been laid out, maybe those jumps will seem more extreme. But the sequence of events seems to make sense to me thus far. And so I think it's something that's going to kind of iron out as we continue you along with the series. There is a hunting expedition for Egon's second birthday. Hunting expeditions often have not turned out well for the kings of Westeros. And the quest for this white heart, for this royal animal, was, I think, a really good way to write the mounting pressure on Viserys to name Aegon his successor. Because you have people saying, like, look, it's the sign, the sign of royalty has showed up on your son's second birthday, huh? Right? There's a sign there, right? The stag is the king of the king's wood, your grace, a regal portent for Prince Aegon's name day. But this whole affair also to me is a reminder of how playing to your own best nature can hurt you when it comes to the politics of Westeros. Because we see that the White Heart doesn't actually show up for the king to kill. It's a very beautiful animal that he slaughters anyway. The White Heart shows itself to Rhaenyra, and she really could have, if she'd wanted to, killed that thing and strengthened her own claim to the throne. If she had shown up with this royal animal, as many people in Westeros as believe in signs and portents, that could have been good for her, but she played to her better nature and said, no, don't kill it. Don't kill that animal. It's yet another example of somebody making a decision that is what a lot of people would say was the right one, but was the wrong one for them. And that is a flaw that so many people over the years and the generations past this House of the Dragon show will make that ultimately costs them. Good people don't always win in Westeros, and it's a tough lesson to learn. The whole White heart thing also reminded me a little bit of the last Fantastic Beast movie, The Secret Crimes of Dumbledore, with the chillin', the little uh, wizard beast that showed up to like kneel to the proper wizard leader, whatever the hell was going on in that movie. You know what, let's just remove animals completely from our fictional lines of ascension, because I, I really think it's an unreliable indicator here. Though she didn't bag the heart, it was still a pretty boss move from Rainier to roll up with that big dead pig to feed everybody in the hunting party, covered in the pig's blood. I hope when they were eating the ham sandwiches or whatever came from that pig, that people at least remembered to thank her for the bountiful feast that she brought back to the camp. Something that I think makes Rhaenyra a really sympathetic character is this very palpable feeling, and it's not even really a feeling, it's a reality, that she is an unwanted heir, that the people of Westeros loved her when she was just the king's daughter, but they really don't want her to be the first queen. And I love that insecurity that she shows after Jason Lannister shows up for her hand in marriage, and she's worried that her own father is using her as a power play. Is that what I am to you? A prize to proffer about to the great houses. And then the scene that we just saw in this fourth episode where Damon and Rhaenyra go into the town and they see this show that's being put on where she can hear the disdain in the general public's voice for the idea of having her as a queen. That is a tough, tough lesson. And it just goes to show you that even though Viserys is saying, hey, listen, I've made you my heir, you're my heir, I'm not going to disinherit you. There are the realities of the realm to think about and the fact that even if Rhaenyra is once again a good person, that doesn't mean that she'll be accepted on the Iron Throne. A girl, his heir. Then we have the character of Otto Hightower, who's the Hand of the King. He, for me, fills this role that Viserys did in the Game of Thrones series, which is the character who's doing things for the good of the realm, and whether you approve of that or disapprove of that, and how you view his character in that light. For example, Otto Hightower is an open advocate for disinheriting Rhaenyra and putting Egon next in line to the throne. He's the firstborn son of the king. To deny that he is heir to the throne is to assail the laws of gods and men. Now, this feeds into all of the negative things about the power structure in Westeros, all of the inherently unfair stuff, particularly towards the woman that is next in line to be the first queen of the realm. However, he is right about the fact that there is a real feeling, an actual feeling in Westeros, that they will never accept her as their queen. You mustn't ignore the certain truth that if Rhaenyra were to step over Aegon to ascend the throne, the realm would tear itself apart. So even though he's doing the wrong thing and advocating for the thing that we disagree with, It's also based off of this need for the good of the realm, for keeping peace. The fact that if Rhaenyra is to become Queen of Westeros, it may destabilize the entire royal line. Maybe they'll throw out everybody as happens to Targaryens later on down the family line. So then you have to ask yourself as a viewer, is what he's doing good or is what he's doing bad? And a lot of people don't like Otto Hightower and I certainly get that because he's also an ambitious person. In his own self-interest, and in his own daughter's self-interest, I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he sent Alicent to Viserys while he was grieving. But at the same time, he's not looking to undermine the system. He wants to uphold the system even though doing that means doing things that aren't necessarily great, like having Rhaenyra spied upon. But even that, yes, that was not a good thing to do, but it did bring to light to his attention actions that would destabilize the line of succession if they were to get out. It's operating in these kind of murky gray areas that makes me interested in these characters and interested in the dynamics between them. Because I'm not a huge Otto Hightower fan either, and I think that he is advocating for the unfair treatment of Rhaenyra, but if I can understand it from his perspective and his point of view. If I can understand why this character is doing these things, then that to me makes them a very interesting character. And that's why I think that Otto is one of the more interesting characters in the show so far. A loyal hand must tell his king a discomforting truth from time to time, your grace. If he doesn't, He's failed as a servant. Episode four, which is what aired last night, is what I would call the Game of Thrones-iest episode of the series so far in that it is completely messed up. It pushes the boundaries of everything that you possibly thought the show could go to, and yet you can't look away. It may actually be my favorite episode in some ways, and my least favorite, most hard-to-watch episode in other ways. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is Rhaenyra and Damon, who really embrace their Targaryen lineage and very nearly consummate the most messed up, incestuous on screen relationship since, or I guess before, Cersei and Jamie Lannister. And this is another thing where you're kind of guessing at the motivation of Damon throughout this episode. I like that we didn't get this scene where he's plotting to invite Rhaenyra out to town and you 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 get a sense that he's up to something. No, you just see that she goes and meets them and we watch them as they walk through what I guess would be Flea Bottom, which kind of reminded me of Universal City Walk, but with more mortal danger and chlamydia. And the whole time we're trying to guess what he's up to, guess what his motives are. My personal opinion is that he was trying to destabilize the picture. He was trying to shame Rhaenyra, which is why he took off her cap and wanted to make sure that they were spotted where they were. And he probably thought that he would be in control of this situation. And yet, when they get down into the House of Ill Repute and he decides to make his move, there's that moment where Rhaenyra kind of turns around and takes control of the situation. And now she's calling the shots. And you can see him change instantly because that's not a position he's used to being in. And we've seen that he's had some performance issues before when he feels like he's not empowered and this is really the problem here. He is now not in control of the situation. I don't think he expected his niece to really be as into it as she was and he didn't know how to deal with it so he just runs away. And I've talked with this show about how they're able to convey things that I think are Different messages than we've seen in the show before, but in a way that doesn't seem very preachy and on the nose. And here, the sexual dynamics, and particularly when we talk about them through Rhaenyra, I think are very different in ways, or at least ways that we haven't seen very often in any iteration of this show on television before. When it comes to sexuality, women in this universe are very often the victims. And yet, in this episode, Rhaenyra is actually the one making the move. She's the one instigating this kind of contact. She has her almost encounter with Damon. She goes back home, and you can tell she's kind of got a, a feel for this, and she immediately seduces Sir Criston. She is the one who initiates that contact. She's the one saying like, no, I want to do this. And even in the sex scene that they shoot, it's very largely focused, meaning what they're showing us on her pleasure, which is not necessarily something that we always see, not only in this show or any version of this show, but in media everywhere. And when you contrast the scene with Ranira having sex in this episode versus Alicent, who's having a very loveless, empty sex, it really puts these two characters on a different footing. And we already had the scene where Rhaenyra said, I'm not gonna be someone who just gets locked in a castle to pump out airs until I die. How romantic it must be to get imprisoned in a castle and me to squeeze out to air. This was a depiction of that and what we're really doing and establishing more in this episode than in almost any other episode is that as Rhaenyra becomes a grown woman, she's independent, she's unafraid to challenge convention, she's openly combative towards existing male-dominated power structures, she's not reliant on the societal rules or the whims of men to find sexual fulfillment. In a show that is set, at least in the way that it feels, hundreds of years ago, she is a fairly modern thus far female character. Now this could go any number of ways. We've seen the show bungle this sort of thing before, but I think it is really refreshing the way that they are painting Rhaenyra as her own character with her own values and yet not making it seem like she is a mouthpiece for people that want to put the current political situation on television. This all seems inherent to who she is, which by the way is a way to make a statement about the times that we're living in, but in a way that makes sense dramatically and in a way that feels inherent to the show. At the heart of this, and we see a few scenes of discussion about it in this episode, is the real life double standard that in many circles, men are celebrated for the sexual conquests while women are punished for theirs. When we were Nero's age, we fed our way through most of the brothels on the street of silk. We were young men. She's just a girl. Why, I born a man, I could bet him if I wanted. I could father a dozen bastards. You're right but you were born a woman. I like that the show is taking this on, but I also like that the show is unafraid to make Rhaenyra a character who is not perfect. I can see the beginnings of a more deceptive side to her, especially in the lies or at best half-truths that she gives to Alicent when Alicent confronts her about her tryst with Daemon. Daemon never touched me. I swear this to you upon the memory of my mother. And I think this shows that Rhaenyra is understanding that she has to use deception. It's not just going to happen for her like it would if the king had named a son the next ruler of Westeros. She's going to have to work to maintain that position and you see her get to work in this episode. And that begins with her agreeing to marry Lenor Velaryon who is one of the dragon riders as I mentioned before but only if her father ousts Otto Hightower as the hand of the king. I will do my duties sir. And with Selenor, but you must first do yours as king. This removes somebody who she sees as not being in her camp. It potentially allows somebody in that could be more on her side, although you always have to be careful what you wish for on this show because the next hand of the king may be even more destabilizing. You just never know what's going to happen. We've seen so many times that people that don't learn to play the Game of Thrones often will die a horrible death, although even people that do play the Game of Thrones may also die a horrible death. There are a lot of horrible deaths in Westeros. Regardless, Rhaenyra is now an active player in this game, but even still, she is in many ways subject to the whims of the king, uh, with the maester delivering the plan B-T that she's given at the end of this episode that's basically a message saying like, sure, you may want to assert some power and authority here, but I am still able to exert control over you, such as telling you when you'll have heirs and with whom. I don't think that the power struggle is anywhere close to over between Rhaenyra and Viserys and this whole alliance with House Valerian and marrying Laenor. I highly doubt that there's just going to be some royal wedding and all of the bad blood between houses is mended and the heir to the throne question is settled. I think this is just the beginning of the troubles, and they're troubles that, quite frankly, Viserys is not prepared for. When it comes to Damon, I really don't think that we're going to see him in King's Landing again, because the whole, you tried to seduce my daughter, who's also your niece thing, is very unlikely to be forgiven. I have spent a lifetime defending you, but your heart is even blacker than I thought. I should disinherit her. They already did you. But I also doubt that Daemon is just going to sit in the veil in exile with his wife, who he very much does not like. Daemon is very chummy with the Valyrian family, and I could see this Rhaenyra-Daemon relationship continuing to develop, especially if Aegon is named heir to the Iron Throne. Viserys is obviously not meant to sit on the throne we see in this episode. He's just covered in all of these marks because the Iron Throne is literally almost rejecting him like a like a bad organ. So I don't know how much longer he has left to sit the throne or if he's got the strength to maintain Rhaenyra as his heir. Or if Rhaenyra's is not going to do something that's going to force his hand to disinherit her or at least give him the pretense to disinherit her from the Iron Throne. So I think there's a lot of intrigue still to come when it comes to these intrafamily dynamics. Something else that we got a reminder for this week. Is the prophecy that the Targaryens must sit the Iron Throne to prevent this long winter from engulfing Westeros? I don't think they would keep bringing this up if it didn't play into the storyline in a major way and I'm even more surprised really that they keep coming back to it because I did not expect this direct tie-in. Obviously everything's tied into Game of Thrones, but this direct tie-in to the White Walkers, which we know nothing really happens with them in this era of Westeros' history or at least not that we know of. So I am curious to see what this tie-in is and how it plays out in the bigger conflict. So we've talked about a lot of different characters that were featured over these episodes, and there's a lot of really interesting places to go. I am curious to know when this big time jump is going to happen. Some people say it will be after next week's episode, although the longer that we keep Millie Alcock on the show, the happier that I will be. But I want to talk about the real MVP of these two episodes. He's a very minor character who appeared very briefly in the beginning of episode four, and that is young Lord Blackwood. He was asking for Rhaenyra's hand in the very opening scenes of episode four, and I felt really bad for him because he's basically being bullied. He's got a house, he's obviously got bad blood with the house of one of these people that's there watching him. They keep on insulting him, etc. Your day shall be easy and night safe, under my protection. Protection? The princess has a dragon, you dumb c- And he's like, you know what, I might be 12 years old, but I've had enough of your garbage. He takes his sword out, and then the camera panned away, and I was like, oh no, they're gonna kill that little kid, because it's Westeros, that's what happens. And then this kid takes out the bully, who's like twice as tall as him, and we never see him again. I hope that we do return to him, I hope he becomes like a knight of the Kingsguard or something. But I just wanted to take some time to recognize him, because listen, I don't condone murder, in case you were wondering, I really, really don't. However... In this specific situation on this show, where things like this were often settled with murder, I'm happy that the kid won. I I didn't want him to die. And honestly, maybe the next time someone from House Bracken decides to open their fat yap, they think about little young Lord Blackwood, who might put a sword through their stomach. I doubt we'll see that character return, but are there any characters you're looking forward to seeing? Are you wondering what's going to happen with Otto Hightower? Do you want to know what's happening with Daemon Targaryen? Do you think we're going to see somebody dropped out of the bottom of the veil again? Let me know down in the comments below, and stay tuned here on the channel. It's a very busy week. Tomorrow, I've got charts. I also have a review coming up for Clerks 3. I'm going to be looking at three episodes of She-Hulk later this week. I'm going to be looking at two episodes of Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. There will be an Andor review at some point. I don't really know when or if those screeners are coming in or when the review embargo drops, but as soon as I can review that here on the channel, I will. And I'm also prepping some stuff for past this week. So uh, hit that little bell icon, subscribe. There's lots of great stuff coming to the channel this week, but thank you so much for watching this video. Stay tuned for much more to come until next time. Stay safe and I'll see you then. Bye.